Hello everyone, my name is Davis Surrett and I am working in marketing with the center for this summer of 2019. In this audio, Richard E. Simmons III, the founding director for the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama, discusses the success trap. What is it? He asks listeners thoughtful questions like, what is your life truly about? What will you see upon reflection at the end of your life? What legacy will live on about you once you are gone? How do you currently measure and gauge your life? What are your standards? How much do you truly need the approval of others? And currently, are you right with God? Are you certain you will be spending eternity with Him? On behalf of myself and everyone here at the Center, we truly and humbly thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode of the Reliable Truth Podcast. Oops. We want to go ahead and get started. The, uh, the talk this morning is the success trap. How do you measure a man's life? And I don't know how many of you ever read the play, Death of a Salesman. It was written in 1949 by Arthur Miller. He won a Pulitzer Prize for it. And of all things, uh, it's a, a play about an insurance salesman. Willie Loman, and if you haven't read the play, maybe you've seen the movie with Dustin Hoffman and John Malkovich. It's excellent. I recommend it. But in the, in the course of the plot, what you have is an insurance salesman who has been deluded into thinking that he is a very successful man. He lives with this deluded idea that he is a big deal, he's important. And as you go through the play, as, it, as the, the, the plot unwinds and the events unfold, what happens is Loman is required or is kind of forced to look reality in the eye. And, and he comes to the conclusion and recognizes that he's not what he thought he was. In fact, he recognizes he's a failure. And at the end of the play, he takes his life. And after the funeral, his wife, in mourning, is talking to her son, and this is really the way the play ends. She says, Biff, why did he do it? Why did he do it? And Biff looks at his mom and says, shucks, Ma, he had all the wrong dreams. He had all the wrong dreams. So this morning, I would ask you to reflect on this issue. What are your aspirations for the rest of your life? You know, what are your dreams? One of the things that I have discovered for me personally is that our dreams do change over time. And I had a real unusual uh, event. Uh, I don't know if you'd call it an event, maybe an experience this last weekend I want to share with you to really kind of kick this off. Uh, I was at my 25th college reunion at the University of the South last weekend. And being a small college, the alumni weekends, the big weekend in the fall, the reunion weekends are big deals. And they're heavily promoted because each class was so small you have a pretty good turnout. But what they try to emphasize is the 25th reunion and the 50th reunion. The class of 76, which I was a part of, and the class of 51. 
And for me, it was, I found myself being very reflective. Looking back on 25 years, you go to a place where you spent four of the most significant years of your life with people who you were very close to. People, in some cases, you hadn't seen for 25 years. And you have a whole weekend to really kind of reflect on the past. And what was interesting is I had several occasions to interact with some of the students. Um, I, took my, my, I took two of my children with me and my wife, and uh, we were walking around the campus, went to my fraternity house, and you saw students. Um, we even had a student babysit for our children one night, and I had a chance to interact with her. And it was interesting, my reflection on these students were, it's amazing how young they are. I mean, they're like kids. And it struck me also how confident they were, almost cocky, a number of them. And they kind of had this attitude, I'm ready to get out of here and go out and slay the world. And then Saturday morning, they have a big brunch. And they bring in all the alumni that are in attendance. And they give some awards, the Distinguished uh, uh, Faculty Award, Distinguished Alumni Award. They, have, they talk about giving money. Uh, and then they have the Vice Chancellor get up and make a speech. And going in, I ran into a professor who was teaching when I was there and who also happened to be in the class of 51. He went to school there and then went on and got his graduate and PhD and came back and taught history, uh, Dr. Cushman. And I ran into him and I said, let's sit together. And so I sat with him and we ended up sitting at a table just like this with a bunch of his cronies from the class of 51. And, you know, I was sitting there and I was, I was looking at all of them and I was wondering what it was like to be here 50 years later. You know, what were they thinking? What was going on through their minds? Contrasting them with, the other, with these students that I'd seen. And, and, you know, a lot of these men were from Birmingham. There was a prominent physician from our community, uh, two men that owned businesses here. There was a guy I'd met in my own industry eight years before who for a number of years was president of the U.S. operations of Willis Caroon, who is a big competitor of my firm, the firm I work for. And... These were all pretty much successful people, and yet they were all retired. And so you've got to imagine what I had the opportunity to do. And I, it was like, kind of like a flash, maybe an epiphany. I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at, there are a bunch of students at this breakfast, and I look back and I thought, that's where I was 25 years ago. And then I looked at the men that were sitting at the table, and I thought, God willing, I'm here. That's where I'll be. 25 years from now. And you rarely have an opportunity like that to sit and think. And the, the thing that kept going through my mind was, what is life going to be like when I get to the point that those men in the class of 51? And I, you know, I didn't know what, the, you know, I'm not sure what they were reflecting on. Um, but ironically, two nights later at home I was reading and I read where Lee Iacocca, in his autobiography, made this, this statement. He said, here I am in the twilight years of my life, still wondering what it's all about. I can tell you this, fame and fortune is for the birds. And I asked myself, you know, is, is, that, is that where I'm going to be? Is that where we're all going to be at the end of our lives? Wondering, what is it really all about? That's why I believe Bob Buford, who um, 
wrote the book Halftime that's had such an impact on my life personally. I think he was correct when he said, you get to a certain point in your life when you want more than just a successful career. You want your life to count for something. You want your life to have made a difference. You want, as he says, a life of significance, not just success. While I was at Swanee, one of the things we read in one of the courses I took were a number of the plays of another playwright, a guy named Tennessee Williams. I don't know if you ever read any of his plays. They're very interesting. His probably his most famous was Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Again, if you didn't read the play, maybe you saw the movie with Elizabeth Taylor and Paul Newman and Burl Ives. And the thing about Williams was he, was a very, he lived a very decadent life. He was very wealthy because his plays were made into movies. And <clears throat> he was an interesting man in that he had a real insight into the human heart, into the human motivations. In fact, it's been said that so many of his plays reflected really what was going on in his life. And in this play, I've got to set it out for you because you've got this wealthy southern family living on this big plantation, and you have this patriarch figure, a father, who ran the show. There was no mother. And what's interesting, he was, his name in the play, play was Big Daddy. That's what they called him. And he, his children, you know, lived on this big place. I, I think this may be where they got the idea to, to film or do the TV show Dallas because everybody lived on the plantation. And what happens in the course of the play is it's to, it's, they, you find out that Big Daddy is dying. He's dying of cancer. And he has a very tumultuous relationship with, with all of his kids, very contentious. And he has this conversation with his son, Brick. And listen to what he says, knowing, just having told him he's going to die, and, and this was written 50 years ago, he says, I'm worth $10 million in cash and blue chip stocks, but there's only one thing you can't buy on any market on earth, and that's your life when you know it is finished. He says, the human animal is a beast that must eventually die, and if he has money, He buys and he buys and he buys and he hopes one of the things he buys is life everlasting. And he's not talking about everlasting life in spiritual sense, but that he'll leave a mark on this world that will be everlasting. And then they get into this conversation. Big Daddy wants his children to have kids so he'll have grandchildren. And Brick and his wife have a very troubled relationship and are trying to determine whether they ought to have kids. And he says to his father, he says, Big Daddy, why do you want grandchildren? And listen to what he says. This is interesting. He says, I want a part of me to keep on living. I won't have my life end with the grave. For you who are here in April, I shared an illustration that I use often about a a study that was done by a group of sociologists who interviewed a large number of people who were 95 years and older, and they asked them one question. If you could live your life over again, what would you do different? 
And what was surprising, there were a couple of responses that were given by almost every single person. And one of those responses was, if I could live my life over again, I would, I would have spent my life on more endeavors that would live on after I am dead. I think we should listen to these elderly people and what they have to tell us. And I guess my, my point is, is that I believe that there is something deeply embedded within each of us that yearns for this life of significance. <clears throat> and the problem is, I think that most men never find it. Because it's very easy, I think, to end up at the end of your life like Iacocca and ask the question, what has my life been all about? So this morning I want to ask the question, why is it that men have a tendency to miss this? I want to read a verse from the New Testament. <clears throat> it's from Luke chapter 12. And this is Jesus. He says, <clears throat> Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Jesus is telling us here that a man's life is not measured by the abundance of what he has. A question I would ask you to reflect on is, how do you measure a man's life? When you meet somebody, how do you, do you, how do you measure them? How do you size up a person? Do you measure them by the car he drives? The house he lives in? The toys he has? His success in business? You know, I was thinking, when I was thinking about this, you know, back when you're in college and you're 20, you measured a guy by how beautiful the women were that hung out with him. <clears throat> but more important, I, I would say and, and ask you to think about is how do you measure your life? As you look at your life, how do you measure it? How will you measure, you know, if you were successful when you get to the end of it? And I think what happens, guys, is that unfortunately we all have this tendency to measure our lives by the standards that our culture kind of forces upon us. And the standard that I'm thinking of is a, it can be summarized with one word. And that word is performance or achievement. You think about it, whether it's business or politics or in the arts or athletics or scholastically, uh, socially, in the civic arena, wherever it might be, People look at your life and measure you by what you achieve. If I'm successful in the eyes of others, or I'm successful in the eyes of others based on my performance. And I believe most men in middle and upper class America are driven to perform and to achieve. And the reason is, is because when we perform and achieve, we are approved and admired by others. And this is what we believe will make our lives worthwhile. This is how a man measures up as he performs in front of the watching world. 
And I guess the question is, is that in any way true of your life? Now, I know you may not have given it much thought. I'm going to give you some time to evaluate this because you'll see how seductive this can be. Now, now let me stop and say, some would say, isn't this the way it's supposed to be, though? You know, this is the American way. This is what capitalism is all about. The strong and successful succeed. The weak get stepped on and are kind of relegated to an inferior existence. In fact, this is really the core teaching of Edmund Spencer, social Darwinism. And maybe you subscribe to it. But the point that I want to make is how unhealthy and how devastating it can be to be caught in this web, this what I call performance or success trap. And so I want to share with you four thoughts this morning to help you evaluate your life as it relates to what I call the performance trap. And I would ask you to be honest with yourself because it's a very, I think it's a very healthy thing to examine yourself, to know yourself. In fact, John Calvin says that wisdom consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. So it's a healthy thing to understand yourself. Four thoughts. Number one, a person caught in the performance trap is addicted to other people's approval. Now, I don't know about you, but it is a scary thought to me that I would allow other people, other people's opinions, determine how I'm going to live my life. That I would empower somebody else and let them decide how I'm going to live. And yet there's something within us that loves to impress, that loves to impress others. It's hard to understand sometimes. I don't know whether I read this or heard this, but it was an interesting thought. If you go back to 1950, a a majority, not all, Americans looked at buying a car as nothing more than than having transportation. That was the motive to buy a car. And to buy a house was just to have shelter over you. A shelter that you could possibly own. And in 50 years, we've gone from where now a large part of our population buys a car or buys a home to make a statement. Isn't it interesting how we desire to impress? Second thought. The performance trap causes me to develop a fear of failure. And therefore, we avoid taking risks, risks that we probably ought to take because we don't want to fail in the eyes of others. We want to play it safe in life. I want to read to you a a stirring quote, I think, by um, President uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and he addresses this. He says, Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory or defeat. You know that, that, uh, that study that I mentioned, those sociologists? The second, a second answer that emerged from those people 95 years and older was, if I could live my life over again, I would take more risks in life. I would take more risks in life. What they're telling us, I believe, is I played it safe in life. I wish I hadn't have. 
I wish I'd have taken more risk. Even if I'd failed, I regret deeply that I allowed other people's opinions affect me so much that I ended up playing it too safe, and I deeply regret it. This third one is interesting. When you do fail, and I think we've all probably experienced some type of failure along the way, and if you're caught in this trap and you fail in this life, and whatever you're attempting to do, it can devastate you emotionally. If you go back to the last recession we had in the early 90s, a fact, one of the facts is, is that our psychiatric hospitals were full of men who were suffering depression because they lost their jobs. It makes me wonder as I read the headlines today what's happening in the lives of men as you see these massive layoffs, as you see the economy potentially going into recession. I had a guy call me two days ago. A guy that's been to one of these breakfasts, he's lost his job. And he said, I appreciate the invitation Friday, but I just don't think I can get out of bed. He said, I'm scared. He said, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm falling into a deep depression. Think about Willie Loman. Even though that was, it was fictional, the, the point Miller tries to make is look how failure can devastate people. And yet, you know, the irony is a lot of successful people will tell you that some of the great blessings in their lives has been some of their failures. <coughs> the fourth thought is the performance trap leads to a fear of rejection, which explains why men have such superficial and shallow relationships with other men. It's been said, and I think it's true, and you can observe it yourself. You get, a group of <clears throat> you get a group of men together, and our tendency is to talk about sports or business or other men. Rarely will we share with other men, even if it's a good friend, our, our hurt, our pain, the things we're struggling with, our fears, somebody that I can just unload... How many people do you have in this life that you can bear your soul to? I'm talking about another man. It makes you wonder how, what kind of depth our friendships have. Because I think it's important that you can have people that you can go and, and really share what's on your heart. That you can bear your soul to. You know, in thinking about this, this is a sidelight. As a new parent, one of the things that concerns me, and I, is that, and I believe parents probably do this, often not realizing it, but I have this fear of building in the lives of my children this mentality that you've got to perform to be worth anything. You know, you've got to be cheerleader. You've got to make the football. You've got to be anything. And what concerns me is that when our kids don't meet our expectations, it can shatter them. Just something to think about as you raise your kids. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, what's wrong with succeeding? <laughs> what's wrong with performing well? And of course, my answer to that is nothing. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, if in your work life you follow God's mandate in the Bible, 
The pillars of a man's work life should be diligence, integrity, service, serving others, and a pursuit of excellence. And if you make those the pillars of your career, most likely it will lead to some type of success. And of course then the question is, what do you do with the fruits of your success? Because that's the huge issue is, it can be used for good in your life and in your family life, in the life of the community. Or, as Jesus warns us, the problem with the fruits of success is it can corrupt us. And it can corrupt our families, it can corrupt our children. And so that's an issue in itself. But there's nothing wrong with performing well. The point I really want to make this morning is if performing for others is the driving force in your life, if it's how you measure your life and your life's worth, I believe that you and I are opening ourselves up to a disappointing life and a disappointing existence. And when we get to the end of it, we'll wonder, what's it all about? What was my life all about? So what does, in closing, what does one find, or where does one find a life of significance? I want to share with you a parable from the Bible. And it's my favorite parable because it's about a successful businessman. It's something we can all relate to. And recently I heard a guy retell this parable in a modern setting. And it was, he did a really good job. And I've written it out and I'm going to read it to you. Now I need to tell you, he, he lengthens the story quite a bit. I need to warn you. I mean, it won't take you a minute to read, but he lengthens it over because the parable is about eight verses in the scriptures. Um, but what he does, he does a great job in driving home the core point that Jesus is trying to make. And I would invite you to go back and read it yourself to get a good feel for what he's trying to say. And it's in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 16. But let me read to you the retold parable. This is the parable about a very successful man who owned a very successful business. Like many successful people, he was consumed with his work. He did what it took to get the job done. When he wasn't working, his mind would always drift back to the business. At home, his wife was continually trying to get him to slow down, to spend more time at home, and he was vaguely aware that the kids were growing up and he was missing it. However, the kids had come to the point of not expecting much from him. He would continually think to himself, I'll be more available next year when things settle down. He, however, never seems to notice that things do not ever settle down. He continually reminds himself and his wife, I'm doing it for you and the kids. His wife bugs him about going to church, and he goes on occasion, but he prefers to sleep in because it's the only day to do so. He would have more time for church when things settle down. One night he felt a, strange, uh, felt a twinge of pain in his chest and his wife rushes him to the hospital. He suffered a mild heart attack and his doctor informs him of the changes he must make in his lifestyle. So he cuts down on the red meat and the ice cream and begins an exercise program and soon he feels better and all the pain goes away. And eventually he lets things slide, reminding himself, I'll get in better shape when things settle down. One day, the CFO of his company comes in to see him. He is told by the CFO that their business is booming to the point that we cannot keep up with all the orders. We have the chance to strike the mother load. If we can catch this wave, 
we can all be set for life. However, we're going to need larger facilities, new equipment, and the new state-of-the-art technology and delivery systems to keep up with all of our orders. So the man becomes more consumed with his work. Every waking moment is devoted to this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He tells his wife, you know what this means, don't you? When I'm through with this new phase, I'll be able to relax. We'll be set for life. I've covered all the bases. I've prepared for every contingency. We will be financially secure and can finally take all those trips you've been wanting to go on. She, of course, had heard this before, so she did not get her hopes up too much. At about 11 o'clock that night, she tells her husband she's going up to bed and asks if he's going to come up with her. He says, you go ahead. I'll be up in a minute. I have one thing I want to finish as he sat in front of his computer. She goes up, falls asleep, and wakes up at 3 in the morning and realizes her husband is not in bed. She goes downstairs to get him and finds him asleep in front of the computer. She reaches out to wake him up, but his skin is cold. He doesn't respond. She gets this sick feeling in the pit of her stomach. She dials 911. By the time the paramedics arrive, they tell her that he died of a massive heart attack some hours ago. His death is the major item of discussion in the financial community. His extensive obituary was written up in all the papers. It's a shame he was dead, for he would have loved to have read all, good, all the good things written about him. They have a memorial service for him, and because of his prominence, the whole community comes out for it. Several people get up to eulogize him at the service. One said he was one of the leading entrepreneurs of the day. He was a real leader. Another said he was a real innovator in new technology and delivery systems. A third said he was a man of principle. He would never cheat anyone in his business. It was noted by many that he was a pillar in the community and was known and liked by everyone. His life was truly a success. They then buried him, and then they all went home. And late that night, in the cemetery, an angel of God comes along and makes his way through all the markers and tombstones. He stands before this man's memorial tombstone, and he traces with his finger the single word that God has chosen to summarize this man's life. And if you've read the parable, you know what that word is. It's, you fool. You fool. Let me read to you Jesus' own words. You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now, who will own all that you've prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich towards God, or as another translation says, is not rich in the things of God. So where does one find a life of significance? I would say being rich towards God. To be rich in the things of God. Or as Jesus says in Luke 16, 11, to find the true treasures of life, the true riches of life. In November when we meet, that's what I'm going to talk about. What are the true riches of life? What really has value in this life? 
I want to take five minutes to close with a couple of comments and then an illustration and we'll be done. Yesterday morning as I was preparing, um, I began to wonder that if Jesus was standing before this room, this distinguished, before this distinguished audience, and he was asked, make a comment or two about this issue of success. I wondered what would he say. And in thinking about it, it struck me, he, the one thing about Christ was he never sugarcoated anything. He usually told people what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. And though I don't know this, I think maybe he might tell us what he told his disciples in a big crowd in, Mark, in the book of Mark chapter 8, verse 36, when he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In other words, Jesus is saying, What good is it if over the course of your life you get everything you want, but you forfeit your soul for all eternity? We learned the same thing in the parable we just read, didn't we? Jesus says, You're a fool. If all you do is store up treasures for yourself and yet at the same time are spiritually bankrupt. You know, this, guys, this is the fifth breakfast we've had and I would be remiss if I did not tell you that at the heart of Christianity is this one message, the importance of men and women to be right with God. I mean, that's why Jesus went to the cross so that we could be right with God. So the final question that I would throw out, and I really would ask you to reflect on it between now and the next time we meet is, today, are you right with God? If you died tonight, do you know with certainty that you would spend eternity with Him? You know, if you think about it, there's no more important question that you could be asked. And through all of my experiences in talking with men or a group like this, when I ask that question, generally I have four responses. The first response is, yes, I am certain that I will spend eternity with God because I have surrendered my heart to Christ. I desire to follow Him. I am right with God because I have put my faith and I have entrusted my life to Him and what He did on the cross. That's one answer. A second answer that I hear is, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm okay. I'm a member of a church. I go to church. I believe the right things. I've never been to jail. I'm a pretty good guy. The problem with that, as we talked about back in September, is that Jesus tells us if we're depending on getting into heaven because of our good works, by being religious, He says we're in big trouble. Because the problem is, guys, we can never be good enough. As the Apostle Paul said, I think he said it best, if we could earn our way to heaven by being good enough, then Jesus died needlessly. Jesus didn't need to go to the cross. A third response, and this to me is probably one of the most important responses, is when someone says, no, I'm not right with God, and I admit it. You know, generally this person is very close to the kingdom of God. 
Because guys, we all have to get to that point to recognize I'm not right with God before I can get right with Him. But you know the most common response I hear is, well, you know, I really don't know. I'm really not sure. And the reason is because this hadn't been a, an issue of real high priority in my life. Because we have that mindset, kind of like the guy in the parable. You know, I'll think about getting right God, with God later when things settle down. If you and I were in private, just one-on-one, -on -one, and I asked you that question, are you right with God? If you die tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? What would be your answer? I ask you to think about that between now and the next meeting. But I want to just tell you, these, these breakfasts the, and all the Bible studies that flow out of it are there to help you, help any of you, to seek a deeper relationship with God or maybe for the first time find God Himself. I'm available. Maybe the person invited you is available to talk about this. Because guys, there is, I mean, think about it. When we cut through it all, there is no important, more important issue in life. In closing, I want to tie this together with an illustration. It's kind of a humorous illustration, but I think it, it, it's, it's appropriate to tie this all together. <clears throat> and I can remember this as a kid, seeing it. And I have seen it on ESPN a number of times replayed. But it's not, it was, the year night was 1964, or maybe 65. The Minnesota Vikings were playing the San Francisco 49ers. And <clears throat> there was a guy by the name of Jim Marshall that played for the Vikings. And this group, of, I think, is old enough to remember the Purple People Eaters. He was one of them. And during the course of the game, if you, I, I, I bet some of you have seen this. Um, San Francisco has the ball... And somehow the quarterback fumbles. And there's a mad scramble for the ball. And Marshall picks it up. And he starts running. Unfortunately, in the course of the, of the, the frenzy of the fumble, he got turned around. And he's heading in the wrong direction. It's a true story. And you can see him. I mean, he is just, I mean, and nobody's around, nobody's chasing him. I mean, you think about it, he's just, he's running for glory. And he's got that ball and he's carrying it like a loaf of bread. And he's just, I mean, you, you can see him. You can see the expression. I mean, you can't see his face, but you can imagine what it's like. And he goes running across the goal line and he throws the ball up into the stands. Now, this is before they did dances in the end zone. And he just throws his arms up and then he turns around. And nobody's excited. I mean, his, he, you can see his teammates just standing there like this. <clears throat> and, and then a guy from the 49ers goes up and pats him on the rear end and says, good job. <clears throat> and then some of, his player, some of his teammates go up and you can see him going like this, saying, you know, like, you idiot. And, and then he, it, what strikes me, he's just kind of, standing there in disbelief of what just happened. I mean, he just stands there like this. And <clears throat> I, I think it's a great illustration because that's my fear, you know, for all of us. 
is that, you know, we, we move through our lives and our careers so fast and so furious, you know, chasing after success. And when we get to the end, my fear is that we're shocked to find out that all of our lives we've been running towards the wrong goal line. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, each of these men. I uh, thank you for their lives. Father, thank you for all the friendships that exist here. We thank you, Lord, for our families. Above all, Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough to send him to the cross to die for us. We thank you, Lord, for the wisdom and the insight that you give us from the scriptures to learn about life and how to live it. I pray that you would use this time to cause us each to reflect on his own existence and ask the question, what is it all about? What is my life all about? Lord, help us to see what our needs are. Help us to see what our spiritual needs are and where we stand with you. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast by Richard E. Simmons III, Founding Director for the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.thecenterbham.org or follow us on the socials at The Center Beham. Or even you can email Richard at richard at richardesimmons3.com.